The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. And right across from me is the best from the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. The one, the only Sasquatch herself, Tammy the Grr Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Grr. No, hi, everybody. <laughs> you scared me. Jesus Christ. I think I, I think I peed my pants a little bit. A little? <laughs> so as our listeners can tell, I'm pretty damn excited today because yes. um, we have a new segment and we're calling it the Jesperson Report. We had to call in from the smiley face killer. Happy face killer. I'm just going to let it roll. <laughs> I know. You do that every time. That's what I, it's like. You Are know, you sure? I'm positive because the smiley face killer is an unsolved case. And the happy face killer, I should know. I grew up in the West, Northwest. Hold on. I think it's a smiley face. Okay, you know what? Look second. it up all you want to. But I know I'm right. Smiley face killer. Yep. Not the one. It even, oh, you're right. It says it's a say, theory. He okay. even says it in the episode. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm going to use Jesus Christ a lot. Jesus Christ. Anywho, from the <laughs> happy it. face killer. That's right. Keith Hunter Jesperson. That's right. All right. So we're going to just get right into the call and what we uh, what we discussed and everything like that. And this is going to be a multi-parter. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, then we'll talk about it. Here we go. Hey, good morning, Keith. Welcome to the show. Good How morning. you doing, buddy? <laughs> Sorry. I'm doing all right. Yeah, as, as a part two to doing all this, since we had a technical difficulty with the last call, I'm so sorry about that. Well, you have to put money on the account in order for, in order for me to call and talk to you. Yep, well, we got that yeah. taken care of now. Lesson learned. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Lesson so let's, learned. Let's jump right into uh, into what we were talking about before. Is that um, so? In the books and everything, when it comes to the Bennett murder. Uh, which was the, your your very first one? It said that uh, you had felt like you were in control of that situation while your life is out of control. Uh, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Like I said, I, I don't think I was in control. I was kind of like uh, mixed up in the head for a lot of reasons. I'd left, you know, my my wife was left me in 1988, and uh, I was dating this girl, uh, Roberta. And uh, I ended up moving in with her at her house at 18434 Northeast Everett Street. I met her at a truck stop in uh, Weed, California, at Truck Village Drive there. And, and that's I picked her up, and that was where our relationship started. And I ended up with her at her house or at, in Portland, 18431 Northeast Everett Street. And that was her mother's house. And uh, she went to work for Burns Brother Truck Stop there in Trowdale. And we, th- I thought we were, we were getting along just fine. And she, she wanted to get back on the road because she was my co-driver for a while. And she just wanted to go driving. And I was, I was more content to uh, wait out the construction businesses in Portland, Oregon. So I, I was collecting unemployment and uh, just uh, sitting back waiting for the jobs to start up. And she was out there hustling herself down there at the truck stop. Well, one night she didn't come home. I was like, where's she at? And I went down to the truck stop, found out she stopped a ride with some other truck driver to Knoxville, Tennessee. And I removed her car, brought it back to the driveway, and I sat there and waited. And I, and I thought she'd make a phone call, but I never heard one for oh, quite a while. And then uh, 
then I, I get a call and I find out that she wants me to get the hell out of the house. She's found somebody new and she's now driving for the Knoxville for Countrywide Trucking, matter of fact, was the name of the company. And uh, then she also wanted money because she had a habit of, of spending a lot of money on the road and, and uh, she just needed more money for me to tell, you know, she figured it was compensation for me staying at her mom's house. But uh, it just kind of pissed me off. And after we got done hanging up, I, I started, you know, I went around, I went to the bars, and uh, I was playing pool, and I was meeting girls, and uh, I'd met this one girl there at, uh, at about 1 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon at the B&I Tavern there off of Stark Avenue. And when I walked in, I walked in the building there, I hadn't gone in there maybe, you know, maybe a few minutes, and this woman ran over and threw her arms around me and hugged me and was like, uh, wanted me to join her party over at the pool table and I looked at two other guys standing there and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go over there and invade that guy, those guys party. And so eventually I made it back to my house, uh, later in the afternoon and, uh, I was sitting there and I was thinking what, what to do next about four or five in the afternoon. And I decided I would, uh, go back to the bar and maybe play some pool, not realizing that that when I got over there, I actually met up with that girl again, and then uh, we got to talking, and then we decided to go elsewhere. And then, uh, which ended up, I drove her back to the house. She got in the, we went in back in the house. I thought we were going to make out and have a, a good time, and it didn't go as I planned. Hmm. Yeah, so you want totally. me to continue? <laughs> oh yeah, I thought I, I, yeah. <laughs> I thought there was more, more than that. So yeah, the girl we know, that you well, met you know, was I, Tanya, then, right? This is Tanya. Okay, I just I, I, I got her name wrong. I thought her name was Sonia, but it was actually Tanja. <laughs> Tanja Ann Bennett, and right. uh, she's 23 years old. Someone told me later that she was mildly retarded, um, which and then that she didn't understand. Uh, relationships very much, but she was a bar hopper, and that's what she did. And okay. so when he, we we got back at the house, uh, I showed her around inside the house, and then I started to kiss on her. And I thought that you know we're I was going to seduce her, and we we're going to have a good time. And we're laying down on the we we're laying in, in laying on the bed, and and I just there just something didn't click, or something was sad, and. I slugged her. I, I hit her in the face. I just was this. I just for some reason I I'd never hit a woman before in my life, and uh, I hit her. And then once I hit her once, I hit her several times. And I realized after a couple, you know, after about ten times of hitting her, like a punching bag, I stopped. I froze. I was like, "What the hell am I doing?" I'm looking down at a bloody mess. I mean, I literally destroyed her. And I was thinking, "What what should I do?" And I was. I, I thought, well, you know, if I took her to the hospital, of course, I made no no secrets about getting her home. I, had, you know, I figured, well, I'd go into jail, and then I figured if um, a lot of things. I said, well, maybe I just kill her and get it over with, and then leave her body somewhere, and then maybe I'll just get away with this. And that's so I so I put my hands down on her to start to strangle her, and uh, after several minutes, my hands were tired. I, and I let go, and then she started breathing again. And then I, I tried to figure out, well, how do I do this? This isn't like TV. This isn't this isn't like you watch on TV where someone puts their hands around someone's neck and 
15 seconds later, they're dead. They're not. Right, right. Much like, a, like when they used chloroform and everything. Process. Right. This is a long, drawn-out process. This isn't, this isn't going to happen 15 seconds. So I ended up putting my fist into her throat and locked my elbow and leaned in, and that's the only way I figured that I'd be able to hold, it, hold her down that long, and it took about four minutes for her to die. Wow. And then I still wasn't, you know, I, I still didn't really realize that, but I didn't want her coming back, so I, I went into the garage, I grabbed a half-inch nylon rope, came back, and I tied it around her neck really tight and secure, figured, well, if I can't hold on to her that long, I might as well tie a rope around it. And I also thought at the same time that if I'm going to move her, that maybe that all the beer she had drank at the bar or whatever, that that it might come back out of her out of her throat if it was that. So I figured maybe by tying it off that I wouldn't have any leakage. And I was wrong. <laughs> but uh, that's just besides the point. But right after I had killed her, she was laying there with the rope tied around her neck, the phone rang. And I was I was in a panic because I'd never killed anyone before and I didn't know really what was going on really in my head. I was kind of like lost. The phone rang and it was Roberta on the other end and she wanted me to, she wanted to get back together again. She wanted me to be in her life. And for, so for an hour, I talked to her on the phone and, and as I was talking to her, as the body was stiffening up on the, on the, on the floor in front of me. And, uh, I looked down at all the blood on my shirts and my pants, and I said, "Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta wash this." So I washed, I took them off, put them in the washer and dryer, and ran through the cycle. And by the time I got done with the phone call, my clothes were dry, and I put them back on. And uh, I had to decide what to do. But but in that process of sitting there talking to her for for an hour, it uh, calmed me down. It was actually I, I was able to rationalize out what I was going to do next. So I wasn't in this great big panic. I was, no one was knocking out the door or anything. I was just going to go and it was dark. So I decided to um, go back to the B&I Tavern, which I did. I drove back there and I walked into the tavern. I went up there and sat at the bar for a short time. You had a beer, made sure that the bartender knew I left alone. So I wouldn't be, uh, so I wouldn't be associated with the woman there. And uh, then when I, I, I drove out to the Columbia River Gorge and looking for a place to put her body, and once I realized there's a little ravine there south, I mean, uh, kind of north north of the Vista House Monument on the downhill slide right around this one corner of the little ravine there, and I thought, man, I'll put her there. I drove back to 181st and Gleason, and uh, on the way there, I stopped at a convenience store, filled up full of gas, made sure all the lights worked, uh, pulled the dome light out of the of the car, and I pulled into the driveway, backed into the driveway, and left the passenger door open so that uh, when I carried her out there and set her in the front seat that the dome light wasn't on. I went inside, and I just studied her, and I was thinking, now, what, what kind of evidence was I going to leave behind? I didn't want to leave a lot of evidence. So... I thought since I had, had fondled around with the buttons on her jeans, even though I had not undressed her at all, and we didn't have sex at all, I had uh, decided to take the knife and uh, cut off her fly out of her jeans because they were metal. I didn't want to touch them uh, and leave fingerprints. 
And then uh, I also cut the ends of the rope, or the end of the rope tied around her neck. I carried her to the car, and I set her in the front seat and shut the door. So when we were driving, she looked like she was just sitting there, leaning against the window. I took my time, and we drove out there to Troutdale, past the police station, across the bridge on the Sandy River Road, and then drove up through the Vista House Monument and down the other side into the ravine. And I parked there, and I looked up at the Vista House, waiting, thinking about traffic coming down the hill. And uh, so I uh, uh, didn't see any traffic coming, and so I hurried up, ran around the side of the car, opened up the car door, grabbed her by her arm, and started dragging her down in the ravine. Well, little did I realize that when I cut the fly area off her jeans, the moment that I started dragging her down the hill that her jeans fell down to her ankles. And I made it down about 80, 85 feet down the hill, and I, I was there, and I looked down the bottom of the hill, and there's a set of headlights coming at me, and I realized at that moment that I was in the middle of a switchback, that uh, the road cut down at the bottom of there as well as on the top, and I seen these headlights coming, I said, oh, my God, i got to get out of there. So I ran up to the top of the car, and I shut the passenger door, climbed in, and drove down the road there, which is actually heading to the northwest direction. Got down to the to where the switchback was, and as I was coming around the corner, my headlights hit the side of the car coming at me, and it was a, it was a Multnomah County Sheriff's car. Wow. Hey, Keith, I, got a... I was going like, this is, this is how luck runs both ways, or bad luck. I got to pause you right if there. I had been we've a only minute, got uh, 12 yeah. minutes. We're at, we're at 12 minutes right now. So I got to pause you because you said something interesting. Because in all the books, it said that you had actually had sex with Tanya um, twice. And the, the, the quote that it had in the, in the one book that you and I talked about by Jack Owen um, said that uh, she had said uh, something to the effect of, I'm not feeling anything. Let's get this over with. And that's when you killed her. And so that's not correct. Well, it was, I don't know exactly what was said. I just really, I, I think I just struck her because I just was mad at the whole situation. Well, I'm talking about the sex really, part itself. The, the, the sex, because... It, but I never had sex with her. No, okay. I didn't have okay. sex with her. I mean, the, the, the blood spatter itself would prove, the forensic evidence on the case would prove there was no sex involved. Okay, cool. So, see, that, that we're, we're separating out the facts yeah. from the fiction here. Yeah, because I was, I was straddling her with fully clothed, and she was fully clothed. And when I was straight striking her with my fist, and the blood spatter hit the ceiling and everywhere, which, it, too, you know, it cut a bloody nose and everything that had happened. It broke her jaw, probably, and everything else. But, yeah, that was... Um, that was the problem there is that, uh, no, I never had sex with her. It's always been assumed because she's a woman and I was a guy that certainly there had to have been sex involved, which I was wanting to have sex. Let me get it to say that. But at the same time, it didn't happen. And uh, as I, I, like I said, I drove out there to the Columbia River Gorge and I deposited the body down the ravine. And, and that was make my getaway. Now, one of the things I had, I had done on the way out, uh, deciding uh, the evidence, what to leave behind, what not to leave behind, I wore my bicycle riding shoes, which are the Cannondale, which are hard sole, which were like skis on that, that wet grass or and, and leave bad, bad leaves there in, in the woods there. When I slid down that hill, it was almost on sleds. And uh, when I was driving back towards town, I dropped off, I took those shoes off and threw them off the side of the road to the Columbia River and I put my sneakers back on and I drove into Troutdale and parked at the Burns Brothers truck stop 
parked in this spot there, and I got out, went into the restaurant, found a booth next to the window where I could look at my car, and I was sitting there. I wasn't there for maybe 10 minutes, and three state patrol, uh, you know, state police cars came in and parked around my car oh, on each side and uh, walked into the restaurant and pointed right at me, and I was like, oh, shit, this is quick. And then uh, they walked over and sat in the booth right next to me and said, hi, how are you doing, and all this. And I was like, hi, but they were just looking for a place to sit down and have a meal as well. So I was... Uh, I was in shock that they, you know, here they didn't even know I was, a, here I was just murdering someone, and then uh, I would have been terrified. There at the truck stop. <laughs> so, so I stayed there at the truck stop for, until it got light. I went out in the car, and uh, I realized that, you know, while I'd left, I'd actually thrown her tape player uh, onto the bridge of the Sandy River on, on I-84, and had it was destroyed by people driving over it. But I looked down, and here was her purse. And I looked at her purse and her ID card, and uh, I looked at how much money she had. I like $2.11 that was in the purse. I put that in my change, and then I was trying to decide what to do with the purse. So I thought, man, I need to get away from the truck stop. So I drove back across the Sandy River uh, and onto the Sandy River Road heading south, and I drove on up until the road turns to your sharp left towards the Vista House. And there's a little wide spot there, and I pulled over there, and I got out with the purse, and I walked down to the side of the road, and there's a path that went down for the fishermen going down the river, and there's a big old tree stump on on my right that was underneath the telephone lines, and I threw the purse and ID card and scattered its contents into the brush about 40 feet off the road into the brush. And then I got back in the car and I drove back to my house, to the house, and, and when I walked in the house, it smelled like death. Mm-hmm. I went down to the Albertsons at 181st and Gleason and rented a steam vac and steam vac the, the uh, carpet and spent the rest of the day washing the walls and the ceiling of the dry blood that, that scattered from me hitting her in the face. Wow. Gee, many Christmas. So, uh, Tammy actually had a question about you. Uh, not about you. <laughs> about uh, Well, actually, I have several questions now. But um, let me go back to the one I had originally. Is that because, I mean, our listeners know that I was in trouble before and I had been in prison. And I was actually in prison with Laverne Pavlinak, who, got, who was accused of killing Tanya. Um, because of, I mean, I don't want to get into why she was right now because it's too much time. But once they had been arrested and tr- and convicted of that, what made you decide to take credit for it once you had gotten away with it? Well, this is this has taken a long time. See, they were arrested in 1990. Right. Their their uh, trial didn't t- come up until about what uh, January March of uh, of 91. Okay. And. When I went to credit for this, I was in Newburgh, Oregon in, in 1994, uh, the spring of 94. Okay. I was in Newburgh trying to get a construction job, and while I was sitting there, I was reading the newspaper, which I very rarely was in the area, but I was reading the Oregonian. And I started thinking about the uh, those people that were arrested and put in prison, and so I decided to write a letter um to the Oregonian newspaper. Well, first of all, I sent it to the, the, the courthouse, which a lot of people don't realize when you pick up a, a, a phone book, or went back then, you pick up a phone book, <laughs> the phone book is for the county you're in. 
And, right. And I realized that there's several counties I was dealing with. You know, the murder happened in Multnomah County, but here I was in Washington County in Newburgh, Oregon. And I wrote a letter to the Washington County Courthouse saying that uh, they had the wrong people in prison for the Bennett murder. And nothing happened. There was no response to it. Several weeks later, I, I wrote a letter to the Oregonian newspaper claiming not only the Bennett case, but also three or four more other murders. And uh, in the letter was a smiley face on, on the front page, I believe. And then uh, because of the one smiley face, they called the reporter, Phil Stanford, named me the happy face killer. Right. So that's how I got the, that's how I got the title, the happy face killer. One letter to the Oregonian newspaper with a smiley face. But it's why not, did why not, did you not, take credit for it once you had gotten away with it? Is what I was wondering. I was just I was I just wanted to. I thought that the police made a mistake. Oh, okay. So you wanted them to I get out thought, of jail? I, I didn't. I didn't know for sure. I just thought they made a mistake. I just thought uh, that you know that it was like Perry Mason moment, right? Okay, Who gotcha. Lieutenant Trag always arrests the wrong people, and they have to have a good lawyer to get them out. Right, right, right. I just thought that here I'm sitting off the side. I know I I acted alone. I didn't like the fact that I did murder her. But at the same time, I'm going like, well, why are these people in prison? I have no idea how they got in prison. Oh, okay. I got it now. I have no idea how how Laverne, you know, contacted them and said that her boyfriend was involved. Right. I had no idea about that. I just thought that, you know, the, the, the police made a mistake. And I said, well, let's try to clarify this without turning myself in. Okay. You know, so I write a letter to him. I said, you got the wrong people. Figured that they would reinvestigate this and and find out that they made a mistake and they let him out. Well, we know now that that's not what they, their intentions were. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's a, that's another okay. story. That's, that's further down the road here. Right. Okay. That that makes sense to me now. Because I, I was like, why did he take credit? So it was basically, it's like you wanted them to reinvestigate so they could get out, but not necessarily find you. Well, they, I figured they weren't going to come after me because I wasn't out of the picture, but right. I figured that, you know, there's some reason why they were arrested. I had no idea how they were arrested or why they were arrested and what right. what, what scenario came about to make it happen. I, As far as I know, when I read the newspaper saying that someone was, was, had been arrested and, and one of them had confessed, I was like, they confessed to a murder? I right. did. I said, only in America, only in America can I kill someone. And two right. people stand up and take the blame for it. <laughs> yeah, That's right. True. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, this is how this this is this is just straight out of Perry Mason. I mean, this okay. is the, the people who just you know they, they step up and they want to take responsibility for something they didn't do, and then of course it has to do with something else. Okay. It has to do with Laverne being abused by John, right. and so every time she called, every time she was abused by John, she look in the newspaper for an unsolved case, like a bank robbery or something, and right. she would call it in and say, John robbed the bank, or John killed this person, or John was out drinking all night, and you need to violate him because he's on parole or probation or one of the two. Okay. She all was right. trying to get the police, she was trying to get the police to violate him right. instead of her just saying, get, get out of my life. Right. Right, right. Well, she yeah. was known as a crackpot and kind of a kook, and uh, and, and what? Well, uh, they were both nuts. I was oh, going to yeah, say that total nuts. that didn't. I want to clarify that didn't come out until a lot later. Cause no, right, when, right. Yeah, because when I was in prison with her, it's like her story seemed so legit. Well, um, plus John was a kind of a small, slight guy, so yeah. there's no way he's dragging and, a body and, and he was legally disabled. Blind. John was legally blind. 
Yeah, yeah. blind and disabled. So he had yeah. bottle. He had he's bought these Coke bottle glasses and. Right. He had to be driven everywhere. I mean, there's no way in hell that he drove out in the Columbia River Gorge and got rid of the body. Right. He would have had to have someone drive him. Right. And that's right. where the story with Laverne got involved in that. Yeah, that's when she said, well, I was there. Yeah, and unfortunately we've seen this well, time yeah, and time it, again. Well, but... there's, a, there's a long scenario on this where she, the, the police knew she was innocent. The police right. knew John was innocent. They just needed to solve the case any which way they could, and they figured, why not just throw two nuts in the case in, in, in prison? Right, that's exactly what I was going to say. And, and, she, and, time and Laverne again. helped. Laverne helped. Right. Yeah, she was very yeah. instrumental in that. Um, so, Well, you, you got she had a captive, the police had a captive, you know, they had a captive audience. Right, exactly. And the and police were handing her, the police were handing her information about the murder that only I or the police could know about. Right. And she was feeding it right back to them, and that's how they put her in prison. Well, yeah, and I mean, that kind of goes back to the Henry Lee Lucas thing, how they did that with him, you know? Well, Henry, Lu- Henry Lee Lucas killed five people. Right. Uh, he, was, he was convicted and put on death row for Orange Sox. Right. And Orange Sox was killed while he was incarcerated in the Jackson, yeah. Jacksonville City Jail in right. Florida yeah. for 82 days. <laughs> He was in there, and several of the murders that he confessed to that got him on death row in Texas happened during those 82 days he was incarcerated in Florida. Right, and we always refer to Otis and Tool as the Beavis and Butthead of serial killers because their story was just like, whoa, dude. Yeah, we actually, whenever I feel sad, that's why I listen to that episode, yeah, and we, I just I laugh because, you know, you're, you're, you're talking, especially looking at the picture of Henry Lee, this guy looks like a hillbilly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and everything that he said, well, I buried a body underneath this, this roadway and say, tear up a whole roadway. Yeah. And go, oh, well, maybe I didn't. Well, you know, the problem with Luke is he was confessing to crimes that were thousands of miles apart in just a few days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and my whole thing is, I mean, that boils down to the law enforcement is so desperate to close these cases. They will take any story. You know. Well, I, this is what's happened in my case. After I was convicted of my murders, they they came at me from all directions. Hell, I had the Green River Task Force knocking on my door, begging me to confess to the Green River Task Force. Right. You know the tale of the, the story, the tale of two tales, was, was a, was a fictional story I wrote in county jail, and it dragged in the uh, the Tom Jensen of the of the task force. Right. Tell wow. tell tell the story for our audience because uh, I, you and I talked about you telling that story. The Tale of Two Tales. Which, and we talked about it ourselves. Right. And it's it's an interesting story that made law enforcement perk up and said, they go, oh, he's the Green River Killer. That's what he must be. Or he's in cahoots with him. So tell our listeners that story real fast, and then we'll... Well, it, it it's kind of a long-winded story. Basically what it is is a story that I wrote in county jail about driving up Highway 99 from Tacoma into Seattle that I had... Uh, I, I, everything I, I talk about in the story, I, I call uh, I refer to the bitch stepped out in front of me and I ran over. And then I don't refer to her as a woman at any time. I don't, I, I don't refer to any women being hit. It's all about I ran over a dog. I drove up the road. I, I walked out in the woods and I was digging a hole for the dog. At the time I was digging it at night, another guy come walking out at the same, you know, and he started digging all next to mine, and he had come home and, and come in the back door, didn't want to 
disturb his wife, and so his dog came out and he hit it and he killed it, and he carried the dog out there and and he was digging in a hole and burning. And I finally got tired of waiting for him to get done, and I introduced myself to him and I looked at his dog and he looked at mine and. We met at the Denny's restaurant down the road, and we were looking, changing notes, and, and I I told I showed him the jewelry I had off of the one I pulled the jewelry off of, and he looked at it, and he started, and he, he cracked a, a, a tear, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you ran over my other dog. And oh. that's what the, the, the consensus of the story was. I, I ran over a dog, the other guy that owned the dog, owned another dog, and he had killed that dog, and they were burying the same dogs, the two dogs, in a, in a field, across from his apartment complex. And, and it's just a, it's a story of two tales, right? It's two, two, uh, uh, a fictional story of me driving up Highway 99 at the same time the Green River Killer was out killing. Yeah, which and so put law enforcement to I a sent frenzy. The, I sent the story, a fictional story, to a guy in Monroe, Washington named Ken Monsterbrodden, also known as Duke, who was the rat in my cases in Clark County. He was, he was, he was an informant. And he handed the letter over to, he handed the story over to Tom Jensen of the Green River Task Force. The next thing you know, I had a letter from Tom Jensen begging me to confess, saying that only I knew that two sisters were killed in the killings of the Green River Killer. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That, that, yeah. No. <laughs> so that's where that story went. It was all, it was all fiction. I just wrote it out. I mean, just, it, it would take a little while. I could rewrite it. And put it out there, but I'm sure it's out there floating around somewhere. Somewhere, I mean, yeah, probably. Thing. So it's along along with that poem I made with Donner Pass about training a killer to drive over Donner Pass. Oh wow! <laughs> so I yeah, wanna, I, mean, I want to go it, back to the Tanya Bennett case real quick. So prior to that, and prior to you assaulting her physically, you had never thought about killing anybody, correct? Never have. No, I mean, there's okay. always. You know, you you always have arguments with people. I'm going to kill you one of these days, right. or something like that. But you never get around to it. It's always a, it's all a, a in An the empty heat threat. of passion or whatever you're thinking about. But it's never, yeah. never that thought. Well, plus I want to point out that Keith, you know, the 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 one thing about uh, about you is that. It, it, in all the books and everything like that, it never once said that you were abusive to your wife, girlfriends, children, or, or especially your kids. Yeah, you know. Um, so, for you to take this turn down to where you're, you know, beaten down and bent to death, that's that's it's it's a pretty big switch. Uh, I remember one story that was in one of the books that I was reading. One minute that, remaining. Oh, I got that, one minute remaining. I'll call you right back. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. Let, let's hit this next Saturday. How's that sound? How would I call you right back? Okay, no, do one more half-hour session. That oh, we can do that. All right. We're out of here. <laughs> we'll talk to you here in a minute. All right. Bye. 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 Beauty. Dude. Well, that was a very interesting call. That was, It's actually longer than I thought it was going to be because we thought it was only going to be 15, remember? Right. And apparently, we can do 30 half. minutes at a yeah. time. It raises a whole lot of more questions. A whole Dude, lot of more. I have There's so many more questions right now. Right, and what uh, what I found interesting was that, according to Keith, he never raped anybody. He just simply right. killed them. So the the sex was voluntary, even though he had sex with them and then killed them afterwards. It wasn't yeah, a some rape. Some of them, yes, yeah. And that's where you know 
that's part of where we're separating out the BS from the facts is because right. a lot of times they said, well, he was raping and killing. No, he was killing. You can call us the myth busters of serial killers right here. I'm the I'm the serial killer whisperer. <laughs> well, and that's been our whole thing from the very beginning is we want to give people the truth, not regurgitated media. Right. That's, yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's why that's we dig very deep in our research that and find out stuff that nobody has, you know, like what I did with Austin Sig, remember? Oh, when it's yes. Like people were talking about this and how, you know, his DNA came back positive. No, no, it did not. His DNA came back as not a match. Right. And so it's like, you know, and I do have a lot of questions because that, that one night I asked about, you know, why he took the credit after somebody else had been convicted actually made me think twice. About, you know, because the whole situation, because you and I have read a lot of information and seen a lot of documentaries on his case. Right, you right, know, right. Because, especially since we started writing him and getting more of the truth. Right. And, and, and I got a lot of stories, you know, firsthand when I was right. in prison with him, you know, visiting. Right. And so a lot of it, you know, like I said, it's like there's a whole lot going on here that. It wasn't because he wanted, he didn't want a credit for it because he didn't want to get caught like people said he did. He wanted to get people out of jail because he thought, hey, they've been wrongly confused, convicted. Right. Well, it, you know, so that opened up a lot. It gave me a different perspective. And for those of you that, that haven't really researched uh, Keith here, is that he actually got caught because he signed as a witness on a title transfer for yeah. his. Uh, now deceased girlfriend who he also murdered. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He stepped outside the rule. You know how, okay, you're not a rap fan, but NWA has a popular song called Dope Man. And the line in that is, to be a dope man, you you must qualify. Don't get high off your own supply. So that translated in serial killer world is, don't kill close to home. Pretty much, yeah. And he broke rule number one. Uh, my own thing is don't poop in your own backyard, but well, okay. that too, yeah. But yeah, he killed close to home. He killed somebody who he was in a relation, long-term relationship with, and yeah. Correct, but we're going to get to that in other episodes. It yeah, was, that'll be a different episode, but you know, we do have a lot more questions. Oh, yeah, and if you have questions, uh, our listening population. Yeah, email us. We'll ask. Yeah, you can email us at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Make sure you check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation. You get the full story with any, without any of my BS. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And remember, if you're hearing this on anybody else's podcast or even the calls, they're lying, thieving bastards. That's right. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.